Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Movement is Medicine podcast. This is episode 13. I'm your host, Kevin Carr, with my amazing and tardy co-host, Brendan Merrick. I was doing Not jumping jacks as my, as my punishment. Right. Yeah, jumping we're building jacks. mental toughness. We're building mental toughness in you <laughs> for being late. Go listen to episode um, 12. <laughs> um, but, uh, hey, Brandon, you weren't that late. I shouldn't get down the show. Plus, you were training um, the young, the youth of America to be That's better. Right. To be better human practice, beings. So it's, right. uh, it's, it's okay. I'm trying to change your culture, Kevin. I'm trying to change your culture, all right? You're a cult- culture coach. I'm a culture coach. That's I, yeah. coach. Actually, Coach Sims introduced me as strength coach and culture coach. That's my uh, yeah, t- my new job. Why don't you year. talk about uh, kind of like what you're, what you're instituting this season? Oh, so this season, well... Give everyone a little background. Uh, we I worked with a football team last year as their strength and conditioning coach. We had 110 kids start. That's including varsity, freshman, and JV. By the end of the year, we were probably down to 90, maybe 85. Um, and the biggest issue we had was culture, accountability, leadership, um, people showing up late, not doing what they're supposed to do. And this year, Coach Sims and I sat down and had a discussion. And he just blatantly asked me, how do we make leaders? And I was like, oh, man, I don't, I have no idea, actually. I never thought of it like Million that. Million dollar question. Million dollar question, Coach Sims. And so we talked it out. It took me about an hour, hour and a half to kind of come up with this thought process that I am now implementing, but I'm calling it the four IONs. So there is education, competition, recognition, and then termination. So Wait, what does ION stand for? Nothing. They just all end in ION. Oh, okay. I got it. <laughs> the four IONs. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. One right over Ooh, my right head. over your head. Yeah, it's that all that Riesling you just drank. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the first one, education. So this is going to grab our kids who are already kind of self-motivated, who just need a little bit of guidance. They just need a little bit of extra, like, kick to, to keep doing what they're doing and to become that leader that's inside of them. So they already have it built in. We just need to get out of them. That's going to be education. The second piece of this is competition. So we've got kids who are not necessarily self-driven and they're not driven by recognition or affirmation. They don't, they could care less. So I've got one individual in mind that when, when the lights come on and there's some sort of competition, no matter what it is, he's going all out. But other than that, I can't get him to do anything. These are the Lawrence Taylors of the world. Um, Yeah. And then the third one is recognition. So we we have there's kids on every athletic team that are never going to play, but they're a very important part of the team. They practice hard, they show up every day, they give full effort, and they just they don't have the ability, and that's okay. Like they play special teams, they 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 do a lot of other functions on the team, and I want them to be recognized, right? Because they don't get enough recognition. Um, and recognition and affirmations is a great way to build confidence and to call it out in front of the team. Uh, and then the last one is termination. So this is last year. There's a few kids that we should have cut and football usually doesn't have cuts. You keep everybody, but when you have 110 kids, that's a lot of resources and we only have so much and so many coaches and so much energy that we let a lot of uh, poor habits, a lot of bad things kind of spread throughout kind of like the cancers of the group. We should have cut that fat loose. And this year we're going to use competition and recognition and education as a way to kind of filter out some of those kids even more um, and be a little bit quicker to, you know, terminate or cut somebody who needs to be cut. All other sports have cuts except for football. And I was talking to coach Sims about, it. I said, you know, we should be like everybody else. Like in football, you only need 15 players to have a team and you only need 11 to, to play. So we don't need 110. So yeah, we won't, we want everyone there, but 
if somebody's not a part of the first three or part of the culture we're trying to build and they're bringing everybody down and they just don't have the character, we're going to have to cut, cut that individual loose. So um, I'm building out these systems now, a system for, you know how I like systems. Uh, I'm building there's out a system a for, involved. oh yeah, there's, oh, there's a lot of spreadsheets. <laughs> um, but I'm building out this system and I'm calling it the four IONs and we'll see what happens. I got uh, four more months to implement it and today was actually the first day. All right, we'll check back in then uh, yes. after the season to get the recap. <laughs> yep. So, and you well, were just um, in Chicago? Yeah, I just I, I just taught at what was the most unbelievable health club I have ever seen in my entire life. And I will go on on the limb and say I've probably been to more gyms than probably just about anybody <laughs> just given CFSC. Like I've yeah. visited more gyms around the world and seen the most amazing facilities and I've also seen some pretty terrible facilities. Um but this the place good comes East with Bank the bad club, yeah, the East Bank Club in Chicago is one of the most impressive places I've ever seen in my entire life. It is literally an entire city block, and you could live there <laughs> it's crazy. because there is a restaurant that's always open. There is obviously a massive gym and health club and track and indoor tennis and indoor golf and a pool. The, the pool at the top is like a Vegas pool party. There's like multiple bars and like lounge chairs and like a, it's like a party. Um, um, like I said, indoor track. It's crazy. Um, there's even co-working space and a salon and a daycare. It's like everything you need. You could literally stay there. It's like a, a city country club uh, for health. So <laughs> I did a, uh, uh, a workshop there, just like kind of an in-service for the staff. And um, it, it was really, really good. Awesome group of people there. Uh, really great coaches, really into it, wanted to learn. So it was a fun experience. And that kind of caps off my traveling uh, for the near future now. Baby's um, due in one are, month. We're just about into the drop zone, right? Yeah. Now. Is it is it one month? Are we at a month uh, yet? We're in between five and four weeks. Yeah. So this is all uh, right. Let's this go. is a critical time. So I won't be going anywhere. <laughs> critical. Um, but but this was a very very good workshop. So I highly recommend people to check that place out if they're in Chicago. Pretty cool. What's it called um, again? So the East Bank Club. East Bank Club. East Bank. It Club. Sounds like you yeah, could just so. stay there all day. And I, I honestly would have, to be honest, I did stay there all day, but I'd probably just <laughs> stay there forever. They let me. Um, so, uh, but no, we have some good stuff today. I know we, um, we haven't done an interview in a couple weeks cause we had, we kind of had a backlog. We had Nolan's uh, sauna on uh, last mm -hmm. week, which was fun to talk to them. And now we're back on our routine and this is, um, we had listed out some topics previously and, and this was a good one that you threw in there um, kind of talking about like one of those cliches in fitness. And what do we always say? Cliches are cliches because they're true. Uh, mm -hmm. But one thing that you brought up is that you always hear the saying um, in the fitness industry or in physical therapy, anything really where they say the number one thing you have to do is meet the client where they're at. And what does that actually mean? Cause I think a lot of people do say that. But mm -hmm. from an actual practical application standpoint, because it's obviously a good thing to say and a good thing to do. But from a practical application standpoint, what does that actually mean? How do you communicate? How do you program? What do you actually do to ensure that you're doing that? Because it could be one thing to say it, but um, to actually talk about what goes into it uh, is really important. The So for me, it goes into steps. Or, or what are my what are my steps to meeting the client where they're at? And again, you mentioned that the reason why I brought this topic up is because so many people say it, but they don't define it and they don't explain what they mean by that. So I wanted to elaborate and I figured it'd make a really good podcast. So for me, mm -hmm. the first most important thing about meeting somebody where they're at is finding out their why or their goals. So... I like the five whys where you say like, what, why are you here? What brought you here? Like, why are, why are you reaching out to me? Well, I want to lose 20 pounds. Okay, great. That's awesome. I think I could definitely help you with that. But like, why is that important to you? Oh, well, I'm, I'm turning 40 now. I've been, I gained 30 pounds over COVID and I had 10 pounds before that, that I needed to lose. And 
my doctor recently, I, I saw him or her and they gave me some blood work that said I'm pre-diabetic. Oh, okay. So now we're, we're, now we're getting more of the story and say, well, okay, well, well, why is it important for you to not be pre-diabetic or to not, um, not go backwards or go and they go into my, their next way. Like, well, I have two, I have two kids that are teenagers and I need to be able to do this. And, or, uh, my husband and I want to retire in the next five years and I want to be able to travel the world. Like, so like we keep getting deeper and deeper and you just keep asking why until there's really nothing left. Um, so yes, mm -hmm. you're asking for goals and what brought you here, but you, you got to find out their why and their purpose. Mm -hmm. Number and one. Having, having conversations like that and being really good at conversations like that is what makes you a great coach. Being able to take the time, not rush an interview, even if it takes the majority of that first session when you meet them, if you're just talking. Um, that's how you build trust with them to begin with. And that's how you figure out you know, when you say meet them where they're, where they're at, that's how you figure out where at is, right? Being able to ask really good questions. I think when you're a young coach, you're not comfortable with those interviews. You're just happy to have a client. <laughs> <laughs> and you are so consumed probably at that point with showing them how smart you are or showing them why you can help them because you're like, oh, I can definitely help this person that you don't actually take the time to have a conversation with the individual and figure yeah. out where they're coming from and so you said like ask the whys and like you have i always tell people like have a really good set of intake questions that you ask consistently um and so I, in that presentation i did the other day in chicago um, i listed off some of the ones i always ask and i i try i go with the whole you know the mark fisher approach that they taught us like always ask open-ended questions um because they can't just answer yes or no and then it'll lead to you asking better questions after so like you could ask the next why if they answer long-windedly about the, whatever their history is so like i'll say tell me about some of your past experiences with exercise or what are your expectations for a great workout um because you realize their expectations or past experiences are probably vastly different than what you're providing or what your expectation is. They could be coming from no exercise. They could be coming from CrossFit. They could be coming from water aerobics. They could be coming from Pilates. They could be coming from spinning. They could have got hurt previously. Um, they could think that to work out, they have to be in a pile of sweat and drenched and exhausted and sore. Um, or they could think that like a good workout is just taking a walk uh, or, or gardening, right? So like yeah. you don't know where at is until you ask that. Um, what would be your ideal outcome with this training experience and where do you want to be a year from now? So mm -hmm. it speaks to what they want um, and where they want to get to. Um, if they say, hey, I just want to feel a little bit better. Um, I want my cholesterol to be lower. Um, I want to be able to play with my kids. Or do they say like, you know, I want to be super freaking jacked. Um, I want to make my ex-girlfriend really jealous. Uh, like I've heard it's it. very I've different heard people training. Say that. I've, yeah. I've 100% heard yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, training, so I'm training someone right now. Um, yeah. like yep. you, see, okay. you have to know yep. like what fuels them. Um, what do you feel like is your biggest limiting factor from doing that right now? Um, because it could be that they just don't have somewhere to train or they don't know what they're doing. Or it could be like, no, I, you know, it's my job. Uh, I work like 60 hours a week. And then you're like, okay, my expectations to how we can train have just changed. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't get enough sleep. It's my kids. It's my back pain. It could be a lot of different things. And I'll say, in what way, this was my question for people in pain, in what way does your pain affect your daily life? But it could be, in what way does you being out of shape affect your daily life? In what way mm -hmm. um, does uh, you being too weak uh, affect your ability to participate in sports that you like. Um, so it could you could reframe it to whatever their instance is because then you find out very clearly what they want and you saying like, why are you here, right, is really powerful, probably more than we think because uh, realize how expensive personal training is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't want to pay for myself 
it's me either i wouldn't i wouldn't pay a hundred dollars an hour to train with me (laughs) exactly so if they're gonna pay that much money if they're gonna make that large of an economic commitment for a luxury item there's clearly a large motivating factor behind it it's not really something most people take lightly Mm -hmm. in purchasing so to get they might say i just i just want to be a little more fit but then when you like we're asking like okay but why do you want to do this? Well, because I don't want to die before my grandkids get old enough for me to like, you know, hang out with them. Uh, yeah. Like what that's was a, the that's a like lot. That? That's a lot. When you, when you say that out loud, that's a lot different than losing 10 pounds, right? I just don't want to <laughs> die young. Like, oh my God, like that's a, that's yeah. a really deep realization and a really, a really strong carrot to dangle. As opposed to like, yeah. let's lose that 10 pounds, right? And that's like, no, like we're doing this because we want to be there for the people we love when we get older. But it's a whole different um, deep mindset and having that that kind of knowledge uh, makes you a better coach. <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I will add to your, I, we talked about this before we came on, was that a big thing I did when I was younger is I would impart my goals on them thinking that i knew best for them so oh you look like you need to lose 20 pounds you look like you need this you need that and you must want this right if you're coming to me so i would impart my assumptions and what i believe should be their goals on to them without even asking and just start training them so that <laughs> is definitely not the route you want to go because what you think they want is most likely uh, not what they want. Also, I will say, I've, I remember hearing Dan John say this once, that be careful when you ask. The, if you only ask once, this is why it's important to ask multiple whys. If you only ask them one time, they're most likely going to tell you what they think they what they think you want to hear, right? So what would my strength coach or my personal trainer want me to say? Like, oh yeah, I want to lose weight and uh, build muscle and feel healthier, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what that's what they expect that you want them to say. Because then if I don't ask another why, I'm just going to go, all right, awesome. Yeah, that's exactly what I, what I thought. So let's go, right? Mm-hmm. No, you need to dig deeper than that because they're going to tell you what you want to hear the first time. But if you go further than that, they're they are then going to open up and and continue down that path of of what actually brought them in there, not what do they think you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like because you forget that they're always like they're trying to please you. Most people coming to a trainer are somewhat intimidated by coming in mm-hmm. to see you or coming to the gym, mm-hmm. so they're like. Oh, what's this like Jack guy I want to hear? Yeah, I want to deadlift. Like I definitely want to yeah, deadlift. Yeah, yeah. I heard deadlifting's great. Like I want to deadlift like 315. And in the reality, that doesn't really matter to them, nor does it might not help them get to their goals at all. It could, right. but um they're just gonna say what they think you want to hear in hopes of getting through the uncomfortable probably intake conversation right. for them as well. Right. Yes, and everybody wants validation. So you've you've got to try to clear the slate and not go for the validating uh, answer there. Um, So part one or step one for meeting somebody where they're at is to find out their why or their goals and to ask open-ended deep questions. Okay. We good there? Yeah. Okay. So number two is a little bit quicker. It's equipment access. Now, if they're coming to you, this is a moot point, so you can skip this one. So if they're coming to MBSC, we know what equipment we have access to. But you might, like, say, like, they're not with you three the other three days, right, or the other four days a week. So what equipment do you have access to? So I ask this of the healthcare company that I consult with. We're all virtual. So you need to tell me or I need to ask you. Do you have mini bands? Do you have dumbbells? Do you have adjustable dumbbells? What are those weights? Do you have access to a barbell? Can what kind of weather do you have outside? Can you run year round? Can you is there winter you can't run year round? Uh, do you have access to the hotel gym, work gym? Do you literally have nothing but a stability ball? Like that will dictate mm-hmm. a lot, if not all, of my programming. I could write you what I deem to be the perfect program for your goals and what you told me. But if you're like, well, I don't have dumbbells. I don't have mini bands. I don't have 
any of this, then the the program's crap. It really it's doesn't useless. matter. So I need to know what equipment you have access to. What uh, and if you don't, what are you willing to buy or economically like? Or what, what do you have space for? I can't have you buy a barbell and a rack if you live in a one-bedroom apartment. But we can buy sliders and mini bands and yoga blocks and stability balls. Like we, So, like, what are they willing to, to purchase if they don't have anything? What do they have access to and when? That's going to be very important. Like, if I, you don't have access to it all week long and you can only go to use it once a week, then... Um, that changes the program again. So sometimes I write programs where we have one workout at home, one workout mm -hmm. at the work gym, and then one workout at the gym gym. Um, yep. So number two for me, if if they're not coming to you, so this is anyone who's doing online training um, or in-home training or any of that, it's what access do you have to equipment, yep. if any and at all? That's huge because, like, again, it, whether you're talking about programming for people who you see every day, everything's determined by logistics and equipment availability. Even with the equipment we have at MDSC, we don't program stuff in groups because I'm like, well, I don't have 12 of them. Right. Or it takes up too much floor space. Like landmines are a great example. Um, mm -hmm. We only program them one day a week. And we do, like, all the exercises on one day. Um, with the landmine, whether it's like press or something like that, or for lunge, we're like, hey, we're using it today because it takes up a bunch of floor footprint and it makes a mess and stuff. So it's like, again, even in a normal group setting or a normal training setting, that's true. And then at home, another thing that's similar to kind of the equipment I've learned from doing homework exercises with people in the rehab setting is even if they have equipment, what are they willing to do? <laughs> yeah, well, because so you're stealing my thunder on number three. Was that number three? <laughs> yeah, number three. Number three is your commitment. Okay, good. All right, so we'll go right into that. Okay. And... All right. So number two is equipment access and logistics. All right. So now we can get into what's a realistic commitment. Like, what homework are you actually gonna do? Not what you think you should do, or what the media is telling you to do, or what the CDC tells you to do, or what I'm going to tell you to do. What are you actually willing to commit to? So take it away since you... you I ruined it. You um, ruined it. No, you didn't ruin it. <laughs> well, you I remember... Get to when it you anyways. Had, I remember early on for you and I, like when we had rehab clients, we'd send them home with like at-home programs with like 15 <laughs> exercises. It'd be like yeah. two... An eight by 10 sheet, like both sides of like this and this. <laughs> and they'd come back and be like, yeah, sure, I did it. Or they they're better clients were honest with you. Like, I didn't do any of this shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so what you learn really early on is like even what they're willing to do with you in the gym because you have them in front of you for an hour, they'll do exactly what you say. At home, their willpower is so much lower because you're not standing there. And there's the TV and there's their life. And there's all these other things. It's not a perfect training setting. Like they're on their carpet in their living room. So I give them like two exercises, three exercises. Um, and then eventually if I get them to build an actual full exercise at home habit, great. They can build a whole training, we can do a whole training program. And that is the ultimate goal. But in reality, most people are, have a very low uh, willingness as at least early on to commit to a lot at home. Yes. There's a lot of clients, just the people who are really over the top who want to do every little thing. But again, they're the, they're definitely the rarity. Yeah. They don't pay um, your bills. No, no, it's the, the people who train person. six days a week don't usually pay your bills because they already train six days a week. They don't need you. Yeah, it's it's the people who are like, yeah, I did it like once. Uh, yeah. I did a few reps the other day yeah. while I was watching Netflix and I stretched, I kind of stretched. And I pay you so, like, so okay. that you can do it for me. Yeah, so I literally am always like, so now the question I ask, like, what are you actually willing to do? How much time will you commit? Um, and then then reduce it by what they say, because generally they're again, saying what they think you want to hear. And yes. like, we'll just do these two exercises really well. Yeah. And a caveat to that is, so when you ask this third question, what are you willing to commit to? This will lead either to the next part or it leads into a different discussion because now when you tell me 
you want to lose 20 pounds before your wedding in the next three months, but you can only work out two days a week for 20 minutes and that you're not willing to change your eating habits, we need to change the goal or we need to change the mm -hmm. commitment. So this leads to a better discussion and we'll call them expectations. So we use that word a few times. So our expectations need to change because I'll say, mm -hmm. well, you got to change at least some of your diet and you got to work out at least 30 minutes at a high intensity three days a week. And maybe you can lose 10 pounds. I'm going to just be yeah. completely upfront and honest and say, well, what do you want to do? So we either commit more, you change your nutrition or we change the goal because I'm not going to be, I'm not a miracle worker. Like this is, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do my best and it sounds like you're going to do your best, but I know for sure that that's not going to work. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, it just keeps leading to, like you said, the, uh, you have to have these discussions and you have to get really, really good at it and you got to do a lot of them. So number three is what's, what's the realistic commitment and are the expectations correct? Yep. It reminds me of um, One Minute Manager, um, Ken Blanchard. Yep, Ken Blanchard. yeah, Ken Blanchard. Um, I love that book because you can read it in a, like an hour. Um, and so they talk about like goal setting. They say like set expectations. Mm -hmm. Then after you go through, give feedback. And then either reset expectations or reset goals. And so like you can front load that again and say like, okay, if this is your goal, these are the expectations. Do we agree on these are the expectations of what we're going to do to get to that goal? Like have that conversation. It doesn't have to be that direct with the client to say like, Hey, yeah. if you want to lose 20 pounds, these are the behaviors. It's very easy as a coach. Like if, if we said, Hey, what we're going to do in the next six months is you're going to track your calories or you're going to just do something to adjust your diet to accommodate yeah. that goal. Uh, if it's weight loss, reduce your caloric intake, in protein, whatever. We're going to increase your step count. Make sure you're getting like 7,000 steps a day and you're going to consistently work out three days a week. Like mm -hmm. I, I can reasonably, you're, we're going to get you to your goal. Like, right. If, but the problem is this, most people don't do that. Right. And so when they don't, like the worst thing is when the client's like, well, why didn't I get better? And you're like, well, remember the expectations we discussed? And again, right. that doesn't mean that that, that, that person's bad. It just means that we might need to change the goal because right. the behaviors or, yeah. didn't match the goal. Yeah, or change the behaviors. Um, but if you don't, here's the thing. If you don't have that discussion before mm -hmm. and then you work out together for six months and then they ask you, why didn't I see any results? But you didn't have the expectation or the goal discussion beforehand. You mm -hmm. look really stupid because <laughs> you effectively your only answer can be, well, we tried to do what I usually do and it works for a lot of other people, but it didn't work this time for you. Yeah, right. But exactly. I, if I can go back and say, well, the expectation was you were going to food journal, you were going to get 7,000 steps a day and be in here three days a week. You only got 5,000 steps a day. You food journaled for two weeks and you, you missed half of your workouts. It, it, we we discussed this in the beginning like it is very that's why so either we need to change the goal or again increase the behaviors or you know find a little bit more of more motivation somewhere and i think i've talked about the book motivation myth before on here i think it's uh i can't remember his name is jeff something the book's motivation myth and he says he uses exercise and fitness as a lot of his examples because um, it's probably the best example for <laughs> having a lot of motivation at the beginning of the year or to start something <laughs> new with my trainer and then you fall off. And he says it's it, motivation's great for like the first two weeks. It's the Tony Robbins effect. But mm -hmm. after that, like, what's your plan? What do you, what's going to get you there? And the best thing you can do from a commitment standpoint is say, you say you and I are working together, like, okay, I, Kevin Carr, am going to work out three days a week at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning at 7.30 a.m. in the 7.30 a.m. adult group. I'm going to get 7,000 steps a day, six days a week, and I'm going to food journal for the next three weeks, right? So because motivation is going to wane at some point, and you're going to need to always revert back to the plan. 
And when you have that in writing, it's almost a contract that you write with yourself or you could write this with your clients. I've done it before. It is very, you're setting the expectation right from the start. And when it doesn't happen and they don't reach their goals, you can, you can fall back on that. Mm -hmm. Also, you have a written contract that you could hold them. I mean, part of your job as a, as a coach is being an accountability partner. So mm -hmm. I can hold you accountable to that. And again, like you said, we're, you're not a bad person if you can't uphold that. It's just in the beginning, we might've went too hard and we're just going to have to adjust that. We'll move it to two days a week and 5,000 steps and change our goals. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that's an, a really great book. If anyone wants to pick that up, Motivation Myth, uh, it talks all about this commitment exp and expectation piece. Add it to the list. All right, so number one, we'll find out our whys, our goals. Number two, uh, logistics and equipment. Uh, number three is what's a realistic commitment and expectation. And then number four is when you would finally get into the physical assessment and or the physical history of that individual, injuries, uh, their functional movement screen, or, or their the first workout. Uh, we had this. We did this podcast, I believe it was podcast number four, uh, on, on assessments, on, on a first mm -hmm. workout assessment that you take them through. Um, that would then, so that doesn't even come until you've done the first three. Mm -hmm. You would then move to assessment and history. Number five would then be write the first draft of the program. So once I know what brought you in here, what your goals are, what equipment you have access to and or the logistics of the current setup where I'm at, what your commitment is and your expectations are, what your physical assessment is telling me, I can then write the first draft. And I say first draft because once you go through this with this person or they go through it themselves and report back with feedback, you will then write a final draft. Mm -hmm. So the first workout I write is is a rough draft, just like you would write a, a an essay in college. We never want to go back there, but uh, <laughs> just like you would write an essay in high school, you write a first draft, maybe you write a second draft, and then the third draft or the fourth draft is going to be the final draft of that program. So I won't even have a final program for somebody until I get those first five steps. Yeah, and because, I mean, it's always an evolving work out anyways like i always write what i think is going to be that what they do and then we get into it and i'm like yeah yeah probably yeah. maybe overshot their expectation with that one or right. maybe i undershot and then you're like okay i'm going to change this and so it, it's always like meeting them where they're at it gets an is an evolving process right into that first workout and then even more so it's an evolving process that you have to continually go back through all these steps again and reassess their expectations, their goals, their willingness, all the things we just talked about um, as they progress because these people change as well. And so the, the workout changes as well as their, uh, their dedication to it, their availability, their things and things of that nature. So it's a continual uh, process. So meeting people where they are, it's rule number 69 <laughs> in a wonderful book called Coaching Rules, written by someone you might know, Coach Brendan Rierick. <laughs> Wes, that's for you. Um, rule number 69 is for Wes. Rule number 69 is for Wes. Creating a plan for your clients that they do for two weeks and then quit because it was too difficult is not a good plan. You may not have trouble getting clients, but you'll struggle to keep them. Ask your clients and athletes to tell you about their needs, values, and concerns. Use this information to connect and communicate with them. If they're timid to begin training with you, you're better off recognizing that from the beginning and easing them in through a few, few phone calls and a gym walkthrough or inviting them to watch you coach a session. The more you can involve people in developing a plan that fits into their schedule, challenges them just above their current physical and mental abilities and is sound in its principles, the more enjoyable and sustainable 
your training will be. People will buy in if they have a say in the process. So that's something Mm -hmm. we didn't talk about is when you engage somebody like this and they have a say in it, right? Not just me dictating to them what they can and can't and should do when Mm -hmm. they make the decisions for themselves, right? When, when you ask those open-ended questions, they now have a lot more buy-in to the process. And I'll just finish reading here. Some may view it as coddling, but it's not, it's just understanding. Your client is a human being, not just your next project. Exercise, for whatever reason it's being pursued, is a lifelong endeavor. Set yourself up to be a long-term partner, not a short-term fix. So that's meeting people where they are in a wonderful book called Coaching Rules. A how-to manual for a successful career in strength and fitness. Rule number 69, meet people where they are. The the idea of giving them ownership and making them part of the process, I think is huge um, because so much of coaching traditionally is I tell you what to do. Why do we do this? Well, because I said so. <laughs> um, but in reality, you should be, I like the Megan Pomerensky gave me the saying that we should be a lighthouse, not a tugboat. Mm. Um, as a therapist or a coach, like we're trying to guide them. Uh, but we're not trying to drag them along. And when you're a guide to them and they actually want to be doing the things that they're doing and you say, hey, do you like this exercise? What do you think we should do? Or, hey, how many sets do you think we should do? Or how are you feeling today? How much do you think we should go up? Like I always ask, like I already I already programmed the numbers. But I say, hey, what do you think for the next set? Just to get an idea of like how do they feel psychologically about it? Do they feel really good? Like I had a girl today, literally today, she's like, no, I think we should go to 75 because a younger girl. Uh, and I was like, all right, let's go for it. And she freaking crushed it. And I, and she was feeling good today. She was excited. She wanted to lift. And so you just asking gives them a little spark of motivation. Um, and so one thing I think is important, whether it's in a rehab setting or a training setting is planning together. And so you might already have all the data points, the conversations, the assessment, all that stuff. But then you might have already sketched out a program, but say at the next session, okay, this is what I was thinking. What do you think about this? Um, because they might be like, ooh, I don't know about this. Or you can start to identify where they might not have confidence. Like I'll say, hey, mm-hmm. you want to deadlift today? Uh, well, my last trainer, I hurt my back deadlifting. And then you just identify the fact that, okay, they might have some fear avoidance around that particular movement. How do I have to now talk to them about it to bring them the direction we want them to go? Um, and I was, I spoke about this earlier with you in the book before happiness, which I think I recommended before on here by Sean Aker. And he talks about it's, he's a positive psychologist and he talks a lot about finding meaning behind work and positivity at work for people. But you can take these same kind of parallels and draw them right into fitness and rehab. And he said, they looked at a study of like a bunch of people at work and the people who um, found meaning and had meaning markers in their work. So things that were important to them, things they were working hard towards that um, had personal meaning to them, had three times higher level of engagement, happiness, and productivity when their work was centered around things that were personally meaningful to them or things that they had a personal buy-in on. Um, and people who don't recognize meaning in their work, when they looked at their um the biology of these people, they looked at, they had higher reported levels of stress on a daily basis. They had higher levels of cortisol and they had higher levels of blood pressure than people who said they didn't find meaning in their work Um, because their work was inherently stressful. There wasn't a connection to what they were doing. So like, what do they say? They say like um, stress is uh, where, like, what is it? When people have meaning behind something, it's, uh, Oh, they can, they can bear any how. Yes, exactly. Like yes. Whatever the saying is. Yeah. When there's, when someone has a why, they can bear just about any how. Yeah. They can bear right? any struggle. Um, yeah. When you have passion, a why or a purpose. The difference between purpose. passion and stress is meaning. Yes. Right. Like you can, like you could work 80 hours a week for something you really care about, mm-hmm. but you don't want to work 40 hours a week for something you think sucks. <laughs> um, so, um, but, and then one thing I do, especially in rehab and it would, I do it in training as well, but I think it's, it's something I really focus on in rehab is what I call like roadmaps and recaps. Um, so again, plan together to what they want, understand mm-hmm. what's meaningful to them. 
Um, cause I was saying like rehab, like they probably don't care about deadlifting. Like trainers are like, Oh yeah, this person with back pain deadlifted. Like, great. It's probably actually, it is probably good for them, but they don't really care about the deadlift. They care about picking up their kids. So they care about hiking or they care about playing tennis or whatever it is. So like all the roadmaps should be centered around that, not necessarily the means and the weight, because there's a lot of means that mm-hmm. you can get them there. Um, and then recaps at the end of the session to say, okay, how do you feel like today went? Because sometimes your impression of the session or the, the rehab or the workout is much different than that individual. They might've thought it went very poorly or they thought it went really well. And you might thought different. So let's see if we're on the same page. So you guys are speaking the same language. Um, and then highlight the things that went really well, because we know people tend to prioritize negativity in how they view things, especially in their rear view. Um, with the session. So, okay. Hey, look at these things that you did really well today. Uh, you were able to, um, you know, bench press the fifties for the first time, uh, for eight reps and, you know, the ball rollouts looked a little bit better today. And whereas the client might be like, Oh, you know, my back was really stiff when I showed up I'm like, okay, well, do you feel better after? And so getting them to see those things. So that continues to get you on the same page um and continues to keep that ownership for the client that they feel like they're a a part of it they're not just a passenger in the entire process i have i have nothing to add to that (laughs) (laughs) i so let's recap let's recap so when when we say when we say meet somebody where they're at what we mean by that is one find out why they're there Ask open-ended questions. What brought you here? Why are you here? Why is that important to you? And why why does that goal matter? Okay, that's number one. Number two is equipment access or logistics, because that'll dictate a lot of your programming. And of course, if they're coming to you, that's a little bit easier. But if you're doing it, if you're an online trainer, that it's a little bit more difficult. So you have to ask that question and don't just assume that everybody has the finances to buy or get or the, the space, the environment to get whatever you say they need because they most likely don't. Um, number three is, so what's, what's a realistic commitment and expectation? Like you're saying, what roadmap, right? Are we going to be able to make and do they match number one? Does it match your whys and your goals? Uh, number four is to do that that physical assessment and ask previous history, previous experience, all of that. And then number five would then be to finally write the first draft of the program with the information that you got from the first three. So that program theoretically would be meeting them where they're at. And then once you get a bunch of feedback from them, like you were saying, and you finalize it, that's a true, we're meeting this individual where they're at type program. And then from there, it's making adjustments uh, continuously. Uh, and But always going back to the why and the expectations and do they need to change along with the behaviors. Wait, so we just can't give them the work out of the day and tell them they need to survive? <laughs> no, you cannot. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you can, and people will pay for that, but it's not a profession. That's not how I want to be looked at in our profession. I don't consider that coaching, to be honest. So uh, I Very will good. add that, well, because we're going to our book topics next, and I'm going to build off of uh, what you said. And Inside Out Coaching by Joe Ehrman talks about transactional coaching versus Mm -hmm. transformational coaching. So a transactional coach is everything Kevin had said earlier and had just said, right? Here is the workout of the day. Here's what's it on the whiteboard. See you later. I'm going to yell at you, even if you can or can't do it until you feel bad about yourself so that you'll come in and do it again later and perhaps get better at it. Okay. That's transactional Mm -hmm. coaching. I don't actually care about you. All I care about is that you do what I say. That's a transformational coach does the five things we just talked about when you meet somebody where you're at. You ask them why, you ask them open-ended questions, you set expectations, you make them part of the plan, you you 
give them feedback, ask for feedback, and you're continually making them part of the process and making adjustments on the fly. So this book, Inside Out Coaching by Joe Ehrman. He was a football coach uh, and a Hold football player. In, there you go. Get in front there of the camera go. a little more. There yeah, you he go. was a football player in the NFL, and he was a high school football coach. Uh, he shares his story, and then he shares the process that he took his inner-city Baltimore football teams through to build the culture and how he did it as a self-proclaimed uh, transformational coach as opposed to all the transactional coaches that he had his entire life growing up as a football player. Yeah, so, pretty unbelievable book. book. One of my favorites. I think it was one of the first coaching books I ever read at. I think Mike bought all of us this book. That was the mm -hmm. first real like coaching, coaching book that wasn't a training book. Yeah, we still have the staff read it. The interns read it um yeah. all the time because it's uh it kind of it's i like the quote that is in there where he says one of the great myths in america is the sports can build character it should and can build character but sports only build character if the coach has it and intentionally teaches it right um because it's this idea that you know oh sports teaches great lessons well it can teach great lessons but it also teaches a lot of bad lessons uh, you see a lot of bad behaviors in sports uh, for people who might not exhibit the type of character uh, that he talks about in the book. And so um, if it's not done well, um, it can be just as detrimental as it is helpful. And so he does a really good job kind of parsing that out and what it really means to coach people, especially if you coach kids, um, because uh, what's the old NCAA commercial? Like we have uh, over 150,000 college athletes and most of them are going pro in something other than sports or something like mm -hmm. that. Well, that's mm -hmm. true. Most kids will never play a professional sport uh, or even a college sport. And so having the willingness to teach other things, um, character and respect, we just put up this really, I should actually post the picture tomorrow. Um, this up on the wall all over the gym, it says MBSC code of conduct. Oh, I saw that. Someone yeah, posted I'll it. Read it. Mike I'll read it. it. I'll read it out right now. Um, okay. It's really good. Mike saw it somewhere else. And hey, well, we kind of a, a while you it. find that. Yeah. So I used to highlight all of my books when I would. So I opened the book trying to find a, mm -hmm. a quote, a certain quote that I wanted to share with everyone. But this is yeah. why I stopped highlighting books because I literally just highlighted the entire um, book. And huge highlighter. I know, but look at this. You literally can't see any of the words. It's just all highlighted. But I do want to say I opened up to this random page, and it says, to undertake this awesome responsibility, each coach can begin the inside-out journey by asking and answering these four key questions. Why mm -hmm. do I coach? Why do I coach the way I do? What does it feel like to be coached by me? And how do I find define success? I love that third one. What does it feel like to be coached by me? I love that. So, yeah, that's actually yes. a really good question because most people don't want to ask question. that question. Or yeah, or yeah, no, but uh, most people do not want to answer that. <laughs> um, What's MBSC the MBSC code, code, of, code of, conduct? of conduct? Respectful, responsible, ready, the three R's. I can always be heard saying please when asking for something. When given something, I always say thank you. Likewise, when someone says thank you, I respond with you're welcome. To politely interrupt, I will say, excuse me. I'm always respectful to my parents, instructors, teachers, and coaches. Phrases such as good morning, be safe, how are you, and have a great day are part of who I am. Um, and so we have that up on the doors. We have it up by the locker rooms for the kids. Um, just to as like a reminder for them um, yeah. to that, you know, there's a way that we want people to carry themselves in there. Um, because if you create a culture where that's the norm, then that's how people behave. Whereas if you don't enforce it and you don't expect it and you don't remind, have subtle reminders around for people as well, then, you know, you get what, you get what comes in the door. And well, so like you, you said, have to kind the, of create the culture you want. If the coach has character and the, the people that work in your facility or the people mm -hmm. who are around you have character, you'll, you'll most likely also have character and you'll impart that character on part of everybody else. So, uh, of course you can write all those things on the wall and we can read all these books and we can say all these things, but, um, 
do you have the character? Do you do it yourself? Yeah. Um, I remember I got asked that question. How do you build? I think you were there with me at a perform better event. How do you, how do you build culture at your gym? And I remember my mm -hmm. answer being like, is, is if I live my best life and I present myself, like you're saying character, then that's most likely what you're going to receive back in return. Mm -hmm. So what book do you get? My, my book has nothing to do with coaching. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> but this it is shouldn't. a really good book and uh, exercised by Daniel Lieberman. So he wrote uh, the story of the human body as well. Oh, really I was going to say, book. what other book did he write? Okay. Yeah. He's a, he's a evolutionary biologist at Harvard. Um, and so the subtitle is why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding. And I like it because it has a, like a fake cave painting of someone on a treadmill. <laughs> I was wondering uh, what was going he's on. He's pretty funny. Picture. He's a pretty funny guy. Um, but it's interesting because he talks about how like exercise is completely against how us evolutionarily like yeah, it's, the number a, it's, one a, thing. it's a modern uh, a modernity invention. Yeah, because like in everywhere uh, evolutionarily and still in many cultures that are not uh, modernized, like exercise yeah. doesn't make sense because the number one, one, there's still probably food scarcity. Mm -hmm. And we want to uh, be as economical as possible and you know, maximizing the use of the calories that we do have um, and why it's something that we've evolved to do um, in modern society and why it can still be great for us and help us be healthier and be enjoyable. Um, and so how essentially with exercise and programming exercise, we're really working against people's evolution. And so, again, meeting people where they're at um realize that we're asking people to do something that you know years of evolution uh thousands and thousands of years of evolution before them has you know taken them the other direction um and so understanding that it goes into a lot of the common discussions that are going on around sitting around sleeping around general activity around running around lifting weights and all these different exercises approaches and kind of the evolutionary background in the research. Um, it's really, really interesting. It's just a good overall interesting read about exercise and physical activity and health. Um, so, and don't be intimidated by what looks like a really large book. I did, I was highlighting as well. Uh, oh, look at that. and so, because it's not actually like this copy is like 800 pages, but in haste while I was ordering on Amazon, <laughs> uh, I didn't realize that I had ordered the large print edition. <laughs> so this is for like old people, which I mean, okay. pretty much is me at this point. Uh, like the, the letters are really big. And so when I got the book, I was like, why are the letters so big? Um, and then I saw that I had accidentally ordered that. So I was like, well, I'm not going to so, buy it. It's copy. so satisfying, though, to, to flip a page every three seconds. Yeah, you literally you fly through it. Um, so it's very <laughs> through funny. 800 pages. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh. Because the words are so, but it's very good. So it's like all, like all about like exercise, aging, different physical activity, things like that. So I would highly recommend it. It's very interesting. He's a great writer. He's funny. And, uh, so it gives a really good overall perspective. If you, if you're just interested in exercise, I think it's good. If you're working with people, I definitely think it's good because it gives a pretty broad perspective on lots of things your clients ask about and want to talk about anyways. All right. Well, we have a lot of level two events coming up. Fun. I think we have I asked five. For it. Yeah, we got five level two events coming up. Yeah. I believe they are Toronto, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, and Chicago. Yes, yes. that's all yeah. five. Right off the top yeah, of my head. Cause a I, bit, a lot, I, those. Lot, all the big cities. I, all the big cities. So. When, when people ask, what's the difference between level one and level two? All right. So I explain it in eight week blocks. So phase one, phase two, and then maybe phase three are three to four weeks each. So nine to 12 mm -hmm. weeks. That's level one. Okay. All athletes, no matter your level, all adults start in that level one phase one through three 
block. That's what CFSC level one is. That's what we're teaching you. Now, adults continue on that level one path, and we just uh, use movement variability. We change the numbers, change the program, change the conditioning, but they relatively stay in the level one philosophy. Adults will. Mm -hmm. Athletes, on the other hand, so 11 to 22, if you're in college, maybe pro. But even then, when we get to the pros, they're already pros. So we kind of just keep them on level one because <laughs> they're already really good and we don't want to hurt them. Um, that level two is going to be phases three, four, and five. So that's weeks 12 through 16 or 9 through 20 or whatever. All right, so that's the, the second half. So if we, we break level one up into nine weeks, we break level two up to nine weeks, that's 18 total weeks. So where it's just a progression on level one. So we now are Olympic lifting. We are now doing much more advanced medicine ball drills and plyometric drills. We now have more hops and bounds, which in level one, we really only do jumps. Um, and we're doing a lot more barbell lifting. Uh, the conditioning is also more advanced. We now have slide board conditioning and we have a lot more sled work and we have a lot more sprints. So we have all of our sprinting plyometric progressions in level two. Level one is pretty much just box jump and maybe vertical jump in place. And mm -hmm. uh, there's no Olympic lifting in level one. And, and I don't know if I'm missing anything there. So really level one and level two is distinguish between phases one, two, and three, and then four, five, and six for level one. Adults just continue on level one. Athletes will go to level two. That's how I explain it. Yeah, and I really just say like, level two really just covers the entire sports performance program that we use at MBSC. So building, like you said, on top of what is basic training fundamentals for anybody, learning mm -hmm. to squat, learning to hinge, learning to push, learning to pull. We do that in level one. Level two is two full days instead of one day. Um, yep. And it needs to be two full days for two reasons. Um, one, there's just more content. It takes just longer. We could, there's no way. We tried to do the first one in one day and it was exhausting. And we went, we were there till like 8 p.m. Uh, and, um, and it takes a while to learn the things. You realize when we teach a lot of these courses, you have a lot of personal trainers who probably aren't doing a lot of the strength and conditioning uh, athletic development type movements because they're probably training in a normal facility. They're maybe just working with office workers and that's awesome, uh, but they're not sprinting. They're not doing change of direction and agility drills. They're not doing lots of ex hops and bounds and uh, more advanced medicine ball throws. And they're probably not Olympic lifting that often. And so the learning curve uh, is a little bit uh, longer in that what I find what we do in the level two course that has been really helpful um, is the first day we teach all the attendees like they're athletes. I don't even ask them to do much coaching. I say I, today we're going to review all this stuff and I'm going to treat you like my group. I'm just going to give you more details and I'm going to talk about it like the perspective of a coach, but you are going to practice on yourself. I don't care about you coaching anybody else. Because if you haven't physically done it, it's going to be very hard for you to teach it. And if you can't do something that looks like a 5.10.5 or a crossover or an acceleration drill, it's going to be really hard to teach somebody else. And then they sleep on it for the night, right? When you sleep, you myelinate, you build neurons, you solidify motor patterns. Then they come back the next day, they're always better. It's actually unbelievable. They're tired. And they're sore. You're going to be tired and sore mm -hmm. after two days of level two. Level two is level two is way more physically taxing, both for us I, and I'm for tired. you. Yeah, I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah, not <laughs> just for the attendees. Do the stuff to know that I have to teach it. Um, but they come back on the second day, and they're way better at doing all of those things. Um, and then I'm like, okay, now we're going to do a bunch of breakouts and you're going to coach. And then we're going to group up and talk about what went well, what didn't, what, well, what didn't go well. And we're going to talk about different contextual issues, issues when we might apply it differently for you in your setting. 
and it, it works really well over the course of two days. And so we do a lot of speed development stuff. We do a lot of agility stuff, plyo med ball. We do conditioning. Um, there's a lecture the day of as well, whereas level one, it's all practical when you're there. And so it's just a little more in depth. Um, and I would say it's good for the personal trainer who might not have like be a strength conditioning coach, right? But you still want to learn hand cleans. You still want to learn plyos and med ball progressions and understand all these things in conditioning, especially uh, for the gen pop client. So I think it extends beyond, you know, being a collegiate strength coach or a high school strength coach or a professional strength coach, because you develop a lot of skills um, that can be applied pretty much to anyone. It's just much more intensive, uh, as you mentioned. So uh, we do have a lot of those coming up. Um, I think the, the most, the closest one coming up is Philadelphia. It's a lot of Toronto. Oh, Toronto. Yeah. May 28th and 29th in Toronto. Yeah. We have like three weeks in a row. So yeah, May 28th and 29th, we have 27, 28, 29, level one, level two in Toronto, June 3rd, 4th and 5th, level one, level two in Philadelphia, June 11th and 12th is just the level two in New York city. Um, July 8th, 9th and 10th, uh, level one, level two in Woburn. And then. Fast forward to Chicago, August 26th, 27th, 28th, uh, level one, level two in Chicago. So we have a bunch of them coming up. Um, so definitely, if you're interested, we, we offer combo pricing for all of those. You get a discount if you sign up for both. If you haven't done anything, um, we have early bird specials on all those. So I would definitely uh, look into that if you're interested. I know we've had a lot of people asking for us to do more level twos. So we're trying to make a concerted effort of that uh, over the summer. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for listening. It was great chatting with you, Kev, and yeah, I'll see, see you for episode number 14. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.